Hello, I'm Dave Moss, founder of the Unfunded List and host of the Open Door Philanthropy Podcast. Thanks for joining us, as this year we're exploring collaborative giving. Today, we'll be taking a deep dive into funder collaboratives and talking about funding workforce solutions with Amanda Cage, the CEO of the National Fund for Workforce Solutions. Uh, thanks for giving me so much time. I do long interviews. My mm-hmm. audience is small-ish, but they're very serious about their interest in philanthropy. Most of them are working very hard on an issue. Uh, and if they listen to this episode, probably this issue. Uh, I think the most common way someone listens to an episode is that they came to me for advice. Uh, and I told them about which episode to listen to. So, and uh, increasingly, we do, um, at Unfunded List, the nonprofit that I run, uh, we do read a lot of proposals that are focused on uh, the future of work or workforce development, or I find that it's they use different language uh, uh-huh. depending on the funder that they're going to. But uh, but most of them are people who are, you know, eager, you know have encountered an issue. Maybe they have a potential solution. They're fundraising for it. Maybe they work at a nonprofit uh, that works on this issue. And I'll say there are some people who enjoy listening to Dave Moss talk about anything. Those pe- I'm not sure how useful that particular group is, right? But they listen as well. So that's hopefully that helps, gives you an idea of like who will be uh, listening in. It's mostly it's people, right? Writing proposals, trying to figure out philanthropy, which is a big yep. general topic. And you've had an exciting and profes- uh, professional career in philanthropy. I sent uh, over a list of questions. I probably yep. won't be able to get to all of them. If I did, it would probably take us a good, a very long while. Uh, but I'll, I have them here. I will select from them as we go, sure. uh, and uh, I look forward to hearing your answers to all of them. All right, everybody ready? Yeah. Uh, okay. All right. Hello and welcome. This is Dave Moss from the Open Door Philanthropy Podcast, and I'm here with Amanda Cage, who is, I'm pretty sure, the CEO of the National Fund. For workforce solutions, I got it right. Yep, that's right. I don't always, I don't always get it right. Welcome to the podcast, Amanda. Can I call you Amanda? Yes, please. Good. If you'd said no, that would have been an awkward start, I think. Uh, I like to start uh, with my interviews. I can start at the beginning. So, uh, what was your childhood like? What were you like when you were growing up? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Uh, and uh, yeah, start from the start, my childhood. So um, I grew up in a multiracial family in the 70s and 80s when there weren't a lot of us. Um, my parents, uh, who will be celebrating their 50th anniversary this year. Um, my, to them. Yeah, yeah. Um, my father was from a, a Black neighborhood in Kansas City, Missouri, and my mom was from a white farming town in Minnesota, and I think they compromised uh, by deciding to live in the suburbs, someplace in between in the suburbs of Chicago. Uh, So I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago and what uh, probably the residents of, of, of these suburbs would not necessarily identify themselves this way, but suburbs that were really created in the 50s and 60s as a rea- reaction to white flight in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, there's sort of a ring of suburbs around the city of Chicago. Uh, by the time I, I arrived, that was changing somewhat. Uh, in the 70s, we had um, 
you know, immigrants that came to the community of Vietnamese and Laotian refugees. By the 80s, we had, uh, you know, uh, families that were coming from uh, Korea and India and the Philippines. So they were uh, communities that were sort of diversifying with a mix of, uh, I would say, you know, sort of working class uh, folks and then a, an influx of recent immigrants. And so, you know, I, I, I grew up in what was, I think, a pretty diverse uh, community. And, and unfortunately, I don't think a lot of there are a lot of diverse communities in this country. Um, there's a lot of segregation, but I mm. was fortunate enough to live in a place that had people uh, from around the world. Uh, it's very interesting. I am from America's whitest state. Uh, and I'm from like the white part of it. <laughs> I grew up in Waterville, oh. Maine. Oh, uh, Maine. I was like, what is the, what is the whitest curious? state? Oh yeah, yeah sorry. I just, to me, it seemed <laughs> obvious. <laughs> the uh my parents were, were professors and uh, technically their marriage would have been illegal under interfaith marriage laws my father is white and my mother is jewish they currently live in north carolina where up until loving i think their marriage would have been illegal uh and uh, you'd be surprised how controversial it is to have a uh, even to have a white Jewish mother and a white Jewish father, uh, white, not his Methodist, uh, but he loves his neighbor. So, you know, Jewish, I like to say. Uh, and uh, they're the ones who um, I think gave me my original exposure to giving. They are pretty generous people. Uh, how about you? Was it your parents? Um, we, you know, I think giving and generosity were part of the culture that I uh, was raised in. I would say uh, more so of time than money. Volunteerism was very big for my family. Um, my mother has been uh, sort of a chronic volunteer uh, her entire life. She was a hospice volunteer, an oh. AIDS hospice volunteer in the, in the 80s and 90s. Um, she recently was a volunteer in the Cook County Women's Jail, hmm. um, and she, before COVID, she uh, volunteered as part of a, um, a choir that went to hospitals and nursing homes to sing to... Oh, they, she sings. Yes, sick and dying people. So the idea of giving of time uh, to help other folks was part of my... Um, my experience go growing up, I, um, you sound very fortunate, uh, if you'll forgive me, they, uh, you sound very fortunate to, uh, in the mother department. She sounds wonderful. She's a wonderful person. Uh, my father is too. Um, but in my, sure. <laughs> in my church, uh, growing up, I, uh, we, one of the things that happened is, um, my church decided with other to organize with other churches in uh, the area to become um, a sort of rotating shelter because of uh, a rise in homelessness in the suburbs. And so another space where like, it was just expected of us to, to sort of give and spend our time um, on behalf of other people. Is that your, uh, so if you search your memory and try to remember the, your, your first giving experience, was that through the church then? Yeah, I 
I would say I, I have, you know, sort of really distinct memories of, um, you know, sitting in a pew at church and my grandparents giving like all of the grandchildren $2 to put into the offering plate. Um, and, you know, we always seem to have, um, you know, little can banks to, to, you know, drop in your quarters and your nickels for Oxfam or, you know, hunger uh, issues. So yeah, that was, that was definitely um, a place where, um, where giving was part of the, you know, sort of the expectation. The actual coin, like a plate. I've seen you, but you see it on TV. The coin seems, uh, the coin thing seems always communal or whatever. And it's like a nice funny moment in comedies where like the, first the husband gives like a little bit and then right. The wife gives him a look and he, gives a little, <laughs> and he puts a little more in the plate. Like that's right. a great, that's, that's a, that bit works for everybody. Right. You just, I just got to laugh out of you just from describing it. Um, the, uh, the, I like to ask folks about their first memories in giving because, you know, as children, we don't have money. Right. So I like to get right. The, uh, I like to get at the root of like where our giving comes from. Uh, do you remember the first time that you like personally decided um to like to donate your time to something yeah i think you know uh that's a good question i i think that the the first time i thought about regularly giving my time and you know it's going back to this um this situation at my church where it was a, a, a habitual this idea that i had sort of a shift at the shelter that was my responsibility. Um, you know, that happened for me in high school uh, where, uh, where there was a, a feeling that, um, that it was, you know, I was, I was responsible and I had a connection to and a responsibility to the folks um, who came to that, to that shelter for that night uh, to be there. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, I have, I have sort of an idea and a memory of that kind of, um, giving and that kind of obligation to give, if you will. The um, uh, so beyond the church, I assume you went to school, public school in Chicago. Did you say? I did. I went, I went to public school uh, in the suburbs. Uh, yeah. And uh, then I'm at, and then college and such. What did you major in? What kind of degrees did you get? Yeah, so um, I, you know, I went to Oberlin College in Ohio, um, and it was uh, the only college I applied to. I was very attracted to it because it was the first co, I don't know if you know about Oberlin College, but it was the first co-educational college in the United States and uh, first uh, non-historically uh, Black college to admit African Americans. So, you know, this is back in the 1830s and 1840s. And Yes, and it's the guy who said, go West, young man. Is also the founder of Oberlin, I think. Uh, uh, the my memory on this is is hazy. I grew up uh, on the campus of Colby College, which is a very similar place, uh, and also had some strong abolitionist founder roots. Um, but I remember hearing definitely it was the the uh, that Oberlin was the first in some regard. The, yeah, and in terms of abolitionist roots, uh, we've been. Uh, crisscrossing the country to go to Washington, D.C., and we have been stopping at Oberlin, and it was a stop on the Underground Railroad. So there's literally a um, uh, 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 sculpture in front of one of the dorms that was one of the spots on the Underground Railroad. So it, it has a sort of a deep history within the United States. And uh, as I understand, a fairly uh, broad liberal arts education. 
you yeah. were taking poetry yeah. classes and creative writing and uh, write pottery classes and alongside your science and your engineering. Yeah, right? um, yeah. So it, it, it's an interesting school. I studied um, sociology and African American studies. They did have a program uh, which was unique, where um, students could teach a course to other students, and those and those folks could get college credit. So yeah, uh, very um, you know, sort of learning and labor was the motto, and very. Uh, I would say the student body that's very committed to creativity and learning like for the sake of learning, right? Not necessarily prof professional school or credentials, but really focused on sort of like a um, academic inquiry and, and study. Um, so I went there for college um, and had a, a good experience and then um, took a, you know, took a long time off of education to work, um, but eventually went back to graduate school to get a public policy degree at the uh, University of Chicago. Hmm. Very good. So you are, you're learned. Wonderful. I'm learned, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, so uh, did you, uh, you are now the CEO of the National Fund for Workforce Solutions, as I previously got right, even without looking yep. at my notes. Uh, is that what you always wanted to be when you were growing up, going to church? You thought one day I'll be the CEO of the National Fund for Workforce Solutions? Well, given that it didn't exist, uh, definitely not. But I would say not just the National Fund as an organization, uh, but there's sort of a joke within workforce development that um, as a field that focuses so much on careers and work that we're all sort of accident workforce development professionals. None of us grew up saying, I want to work in the workforce right. development field and, um, and help people get jobs. So, um, so yeah, it's, it, it wasn't. What, uh, did, what did you want to be? Um, you know, I think, at, you know, I, I studied, like I said, I studied sociology in uh, college and I, and I think probably the earliest um, occupation that I was interested in was being a sociologist. Like I liked the, I, I like the idea of studying society and institutions and what allowed some people to have opportunity and what allowed some other folks not to have opportunity. So, um, I, you know, I would say I, I still do that um, in, in my profession, um, even though I'm not a sociologist. Well, I mean, depending on it. So by sociologist, did you mean you wanted to teach sociology? What else does a sociologist do? Yeah. I think there is something to that, to the study of, society relevant in any job you might choose so uh, and i believe that's the idea behind the liberal arts education that it will be useful um regardless of what you choose to do what was your first job when you said that you got uh, the oberlin degree and then you were working for a while what was that working for a while what were you doing oh uh, well i worked way before going to college <laughs> so oh, i was one of those you know i walked i worked all through um high school in fact my first job uh I got, you know, that wasn't sort of uh, babysitting. I, at 14, I got a job in a men's clothing store called Silverman's. Um, you were a haberdasher. Yeah, I actually, um, I had to lie about my age to get that job. And I, I'm pretty sure I doctored my um, my student ID. So it didn't show what year that I was born because uh, I probably wasn't supposed to be working because of child labor laws. Um, but that was my first job working in a, Working in a mall, working in a men's clothing store, selling suits. Did you say um, Silverman's? Silverman's, yeah, was the name of it. It was like a mom and pop suit store. Yeah, nice suits. Um, 
they, you know, I don't know if they were uh, mid-range suits. Oh, I see. Yeah. Had, is it still there? No, no. In fact, it, it went, uh, it went uh, rather early. I think it was the beginning of sort of the, the buyout of, you know, sort of mom and pop retail by, yeah. you know, sort of corporate entities. In fact, I ended up working for its successor company. Um, but all through high school, I, I, I had um, two jobs. I worked in retail. Um, and then at some point, I also worked at the public library. So um, sort of had, you oh, know, really? a, a, yeah. Well, that's so the public library, uh, very interesting. The, yeah. But uh, so also, um, so your first job was men's clothing store. Do you find that you have very strong opinions about how suits should fit? I know how, yes. I have, it's actually very <laughs> useful knowledge to have for the rest of your life. I can uh, often look at people and tell them what size they wear or why they're wearing the wrong size. So yes, very practical knowledge. The, um, my, fa my father's first job, if he ever gets around to listen to this, he'll like that. His first job was also in a men's clothing store. And I long ago had to stop buying pants with him. Right? Yeah. Even if he was going to pay for them, it's not worth <laughs> it's not worth it. Uh, he also had, you know, the, the way pants are supposed to fit does like kind of change with the styles. Yeah. He tended yeah. to have like because of when he worked at, I forget the name of his. Yeah. Um the uh, some probably the same place. It might have been. <laughs> he's from. Uh, he spent some time in Chicago. Maybe it was the same place. The um, anyway. Well, uh, I'll, I'll I'll say my first job out of college, uh, which I think was your original question, um, well, was was uh, were being a union organizer. So my first job out of college was uh, working with unions to organize uh, workers. Uh, my first campaign was at a hog processing plant in North Carolina. Uh, working with workers there. Really? Where? Um, in near Fayetteville, Lumberton, North Carolina, huh. near Fayetteville. Yeah, I, yeah. so my, my parents uh, live in Pinehurst, North Carolina. Uh, and I've been by, you know, we, I've driven around in the country a lot. And several times my mother has been like, that's a hog processing plant. <laughs> so perhaps one of those was the one that, uh, it's, it's beautiful countryside. Yeah, uh, but I imagine some of those plants probably had some poor practices. Um, the so how did you get into union organizing? Yeah, so you know when I graduated from college, I was really interested in sort of communities and community workers and work, you know. Um, community organizing. So there's a lot of organizing happening at the time, you know, in, in cities among uh, community-based organizations. And I knew that being an organizer was something I was interested in, in terms of like learning the skill about how do you organize folks. Um, during that time, the, the AFL-CIO was actually going through a little bit of a rebirth as, a, as an entity trying to organize workers, um, trying to uh, increased unionization, and so they had uh, a, uh, an organizing institute that they ran, where they recruited both, you know, workers who were in their jobs, um, you know, leaders who were in their in their unions, but also college students to uh, work on uh, union organizing drives. So I I entered that program with the intention of really wanting to learn the skills of how to be an organizer and how to help folks. Uh, sort of rally around were, something. So, would you say you were recruited by AFL-CIO? 
Yeah, yeah. So they, they, they launched a successful recruitment effort. Yeah. Uh, I mean, here I am 25 years later, still working on a lot of the same issues. Do they still do, do you happen to know, do the, do the unions still do that same kind of uh, campus recruiting, hiring folks at school? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that was a very specific, um, you know, from the national, from the AFL-CIO, that was a very uh, specific um, recruitment. I think individual unions probably do um, some recruiting, uh, especially when it comes to researchers. There's a lot of research that needs to be done um, and, and sort of union organizing drives. Um, I can't, I'm trying to think if I remember a Dickinson, a union recruiter. Probably not. I imagine, given who's on the board at Dickinson, that they might not want union recruiters there. Um, I will say, I think a lot of uh, students get exposed to unions. This is true. Like when I look at the cohort of people my age who are um, sort of active in the union movement, a lot of people get connected because of union organizing that's happening on their campus. Uh, So, you know, for example, there's a lot of folks who kind of came out of, you know, you know, even at Harvard or Yale, when they had internal organizing drives with the workers at those universities were organizing, students got exposed to that. And I, I do think it, it moved some people into the to union work. That makes sense. It was not, Dickinson was not a very activist college, so perhaps not a good target for recruitment. But it was a good, when you, it was, this was a, a good job. They paid you, you got to work. It had, you did it have a union, was it a union job? Um, I, I have been a union member of a union, uh, which is an interesting, um, you know, you, you, like all other workers, have issues as a worker that you want to organize with your fellow workers around. Um, it was a, it was a interesting job coming out of college because part of the, the way that it was structured was really um, sending folks to campaigns around the country. So it was, you know, I, I moved into uh, Holiday Inn in North Carolina with a bunch of other organizers. Uh, so it was sort of strange to live sort of in a hotel in small towns around, you know, the South. It's a, it's a strange way to start your work so life. It, did you get assigned? Did you get recruited and then assigned in North Carolina? Is that how you ended up there? Yeah, so um, I you got assigned to a union. I worked for the United Food and Commercial Workers, who was organizing meat packers in North Carolina and nursing homes in uh, Georgia. And so spent time in that area working on campaigns to help those workers organize. We, uh, I would think that the skills from your shifts at the homeless shelter and such would have been useful as a as a union organizer. Would you agree with that? You know, I, I would say one thing that has been, you know, sort of consistent it, it, throughout my work um, has been really understanding about understanding how um, precarious uh, people's lives are on the low end of the wage spectrum, how one sort Indeed. of incident or one uh, interruption can kind of throw people off. Um, you know, there's definitely, uh, when you look at sort of who makes up you know, who, who's homeless at any given time, there's, you know, there are, there's the working poor um, who are, you know, working in working conditions where they're not making enough money to, to live. Um, and then there are folks who, you know, sort of, um, you know, might've lost their job and it sort of threw them into turmoil. Um, so, you know, I, I, that, I think I, I had a appreciation mm. being exposed, being exposed to and building relationship with 
folks who were having that kind of experience um, in terms of being homeless when I was in high school, it just made me, um, you know, sort of more sensitive to what, what happens that puts somebody in that, you know, in that situation or those conditions. Yes, I would think so. The, uh, right, when you're talking to somebody right, about their job, the, you've seen firsthand what losing that job looks yeah. like. I would think that would only make you better, more passionate as a, yeah. you know, make you maybe work that much harder. The, um, I think it's good. Very, uh, very compelling story. So, uh, one of our, one of the best evaluators we have here at the unfunded list, um, our program depends on a very large volunteer review committee, uh, mm -hmm. folks from all over the world, all walks of life, uh, including a lot of, uh, program officers at foundations, uh, including a young woman named Whitney Wade. She's a program officer at a place called the McCormick foundation. I used to work there. And as far as I can tell, she has the job that you used to. She totally does. Uh, and <laughs> I used, I just, I, uh, I recently caught up with her and we, yeah. uh, we do evaluator highlight posts from our social media. They're usually the like most liked posts that we do. People like shout outs in general. Uh, and we did one for Whitney last week and it's the most liked post ever on that we've ever done on LinkedIn. Oh, great. She's clearly got a huge fan base there in Chicago. And of course, and it was interesting to, I got a chance to chat with her and such about the, I was actually planning to talk to her anyway. She's been evaluating with us for five years. And then I booked this interview and I was reading about you the day before I was scheduled to talk with her. It became pretty clear, right? You had the, you had the same job. And that made me start thinking, right? So you went, so at some point you went from being a union organizer in Fayetteville, North Carolina to a program officer at the McCormick Foundation. Yeah. So we do have, we probably have a lot of folks who listen to the podcast and, and out there in the world who would love, right? Uh, so someday, uh, right, 40 years from now, 50 maybe, you'll be retired. And maybe Whitney will be the CEO of the National Fund, right? And someone would, and so maybe somebody listening now will become the program officer of the McCormick Foundation. And so, uh, but in general, that's a cool job. Right, uh, big foundation, uh, large endowment, able to have a lot of influence in Chicago and outside of Chicago. Uh, whereas, right, being a labor labor organizer, um, you've got the you've got a big organization like the AFL-CIO behind you. That's good, but it's a little bit yeah. more scruffy work, I would say. Um, I imagine the foundation, uh, the offices at the Park Foundation, are very nice. Um, <laughs> Probably a nice view of Chicago. It was it was the first place I ever worked <laughs> where all the furniture matched. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that tracks. Uh, so how did you get to you know how, how, that's very interesting. How did you how does one? Yeah. There's a saying in Hollywood. They say it's nice work if you can get it, yeah. right? So I, I, I actually I don't know Whitney, but I do want to go uh, give a shout out to her because I know of her. I don't I don't know her directly, um, and the reason I know of her is because she really was part of a initiative led with a close colleague of mine to create a Southside Giving yes, Circle. Yes, she's for, the co-chair of the Southside yeah. Giving Circle. It sounds very cool. So this you know amazing group of African American women who came together and said, "Look, we're not wealthy, but if we pool together our money." Um, and we all decide to give, you know, I don't, I don't know what the dollar amount is these days, but it's, you know, substantial, but modest, uh, we can have an impact on our community. And so, um, 
Pedro Leslie is the, the name of my colleague who was part of the founding group and just really impressed by the work that they've done. So shout out to shout out to her. Well, this is great because um, like I said it was the most liked post ever. Yeah, right? Now that yeah. you've mentioned her, we can we can ping her again, right? Take take yeah. advantage of her fan of her significant fan base. Yeah. So I'll say I didn't know, I didn't know anything. I well, not nothing, but I didn't know very much about philanthropy um, when I got into it. I, uh, I I'll say that I think I accidentally got into philanthropy. I went from union organizing. You know, I think lots of organizing, however you do it, if it's community organizing or political organizing or union organizing, at some point you burn out because it's hard work. Yep. Um, and so I. Um, you know, I had been doing it for a, a long time. I felt very much like um, that it was that the rules were were not fair. That the rules, you know, the rules were set up for uh, working people to sort of fail in this context, regardless how much you know work that they did. The labor laws and all of the stuff were kind of working against them. Um, so did, I decided to go to pu public policy school. Um, I kind of weighed law school and public policy school as a way to think about changing the rules of the bigger game. Um, and when I was in public policy school, in between the two years, uh, there was a summer. And the McCormick Foundation had a fellowship that paid. And so I, um, I applied for the fellowship because I was um, interested in working over the summer and wasn't willing to intern or work for free. I had been past that point in my life. I needed you know, income. Um, so I worked at the, the McCormick Foundation as part of a, a, a or I'm sorry, I worked at the Chicago Community Trust as part of a, a fellowship that they had there. Um, and so that's where I got um, introduced to philanthropy. Um, and uh, it was a, it was unique to be part of a community foundation because they kind of, they funded a lot of things around the city of Chicago, right? They're a big funder of lots of different um, issue areas, uh, lots of institutions. And so it was just a really good place to, to I, I had moved back to Chicago. I didn't know the city well. It was a good place to learn about, you know, who was out there doing what kind of work. Um, and then when I finished, because I was sort of exposed to that and, and met a, a number of program officers and, and were able to connect with other uh, foundations and their program officers, when the, the job at the McCormick Foundation uh, became available, um, I knew about it, which was one thing, right? Like I knew the people who knew that there was a job there um, and was able to apply and get it. And so... Um, you know, I, I think the work at the McCormick Foundation was really helpful because I, A, I, I led the workforce development portfolio, so it gave me great knowledge into understanding workforce development uh, programs and policy. Uh, but we didn't just do workforce development. We did, you know, uh, we did work around literacy and around homelessness and around hunger and around um, domestic violence and community violence. So it was a really good opportunity to sort of like understand how all of these issues intersect and 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 um, affect each other. Uh, very interesting. And then uh, you ended up at the National Fund for Workforce Solutions. Uh, what, well, there was a, yeah, there was a there was a step a step in between. Step in between. Yeah. So um, I actually. Uh, managed the workforce development portfolio at a time when the city of Chicago was uh, sort of revamping and reorganizing its its public investment in the workforce development system. Um, and so I left the foundation world to uh, go work for 
uh, sort of a partner organization of uh, the city of Chicago when the mayor of the Chicago at the time was trying to really coordinate all of the different funding sources that came into the city um, for workforce development. Um, and then out of that- uh, What was that called? The Chicago Workforce Invest Investment Council. So this is, so basically the mayor fundraises for a council so you've, because you've got various companies and stuff, various interests in the Chicago area. It's a, it's a little different. So it, it's sort of based off, um, you know, there's to get a work to the fundamentals of how something like that. Comes yeah. Out. So there's a, um, you know, all communities in have a, a workforce investment board, which is how federal money gets to localities around job training. So the city of Chicago has a workforce board. The workforce board is made up of, uh, a lot of uh, business people and employers by mandate, the federal legislation says that, that the majority of people on this board have to be um, employers. Um, and in the city of Chicago at the time, and I, I've sort of experienced three, I sort of worked under three mayors over my tenure there. Uh, the, it was Richard Daly at the time, and he, he was really um, trying to figure out, there was this big you know, investment from the Department of Labor that came down through the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act. But he was all also looking at, you know, money came down from the federal government in lots of different pots, right? Some of money came through the housing, you know, HUD, some money came down through the Department of Education and really wanting to sort of coordinate that money and figure out what really was the investment that the city was making, how could it be more coordinated and how could it have more impact. So I left the foundation to go work on that. So I worked in the public workforce system for about 10 years, uh, really looking at sort of the federal investment and also local public investment in workforce development, uh, especially around job training and, and, uh, and overseeing uh, what was at the time, though this money has grown, about $75 million that was invested in Chicago and Cook County to to help workers get jobs. Very interesting. Um, uh, and uh, complex. The mm -hmm. I think you can understand how some folks would get confused by philanthropy, particularly like how federal grants work. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm always interested to learn more about it. It's not something I personally have a background in. Uh, our managing director, at a funded list has is um, much more experienced in that sort of thing. I'm much more of a family foundation, an individual fundraiser. Uh, but um, right as the uh, president flies overhead, right? Um, yeah, I've been here in DC for a while, several administration changes. Bush was president when I moved here. Uh, and um, which means you know, several different presidents, but also a lot of different cabinet secretaries. Yeah. And we have, including like new ones all the time, it seems. Uh, and a new labor secretary seems if, uh, yeah. just yesterday, this week. And yeah. he's a big, big, big yeah. media guy, Barry Walsh. Yes. Yesterday, I was talking to some prominent Boston funders, uh, and they're, they're 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 excited to have a Boston accent in the White House. Yeah. And he's got a great one. Yeah, he does. Been, I've always been a fan of <laughs> yeah. of that particular Actually, accent. Actually, that's where I did my second, you know, when I was doing union work, started in the South, I sort of did three regions. I started in the South. I did a stint in Boston. So I was in Boston for three years working so you heard for the union. Um, and then out in the Pacific Northwest. So yeah, the, those of us from, you know, labor in Boston were very excited about Hardy Walsh. Yes. And um, 
particularly when it comes to grants. Uh, right. One of the things that so the folks who come to unfunded list are generally right. It's a lot of different people. We've reviewed hundreds of different folks from all over the world, but they have encountered a problem in their lives and they have a solution for that problem. Uh, and uh, they need funding for it. Right. Mm-hmm. And they may or may not understand how a funding stream works. Right? Um, for most of them, I've been spending the last four years saying, you know, the federal government probably not a good target for you, right? In terms of like new funding. Yeah. We do have some folks who had, there's one group we advise that was mostly funded by the State Department and they managed to like continue to exist all throughout the previous administration and they're now pretty well positioned going forward. It's gonna, but the, it was a lot of thought and effort and strategy that had to go into that. Um, with a, this is a big change in, in philosophy, as big a change as I've seen Administration-wise, in my time in D.C., much more so than Bush to Obama. Yeah. Um, so what the what would you say to folks with? I mean, we do advise a lot of people who have um, beginnings of workforce solutions. There's probably federal grants for them, or new ones coming down the pipe. Now's probably a very good time uh, for a lot of folks. Is why you're part of why you're excited. Um, is there anything in particular that we should be excited about with a new with a with a new federal government? Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of exciting things going on. I will say, you know, your your comment about uh, you know accessing public money, there is, and, and as somebody who sort of lived in both the public sphere and the private sphere, um, there are different sort of conditions and readiness that you need mm, to be able yes. to, to accept and um, you know accept that money and be able to uh, to to you know. Federal money has a ton of regulation, right? So you need to have some kind of infrastructure to be able to manage uh, regulation. But I, you know, I'll say about this administration, it's interesting when the, um, you know, this time last year when uh, we, you know, we lost 30 million jobs overnight and we had no idea what this was going to look like. My immediate thought in my experience was like, oh, we're like, we didn't know if these people were going to get their jobs, but we still don't know if people are going to get these jobs back, right? We're still $10 million, 10, 10 million jobs short. Um, you know, my immediate thought was like, oh my gosh, we're going to need to have a, we're going to have a new deal again. Like we're going to have, we are going to have like a, a, you know, 1930s style depression and we're going to need to get, you know, get the government is going to have to get involved to yank us out. Um, and then, um, here we are a year later, and those kind of things are being talked about, right? So I do think, um, I think there's lots of um, exciting things going on. I think, you know, the, 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 you know, sort of rescue bills that have just passed, you know, the two, the sort of two that have been, you know, really focused on like keeping us stable during this, um, during this pandemic and during this crisis. Even in those contexts, uh, there there have been innovative tools, right? So direct payments to individuals is something that you know the federal government had not tried before. Having unemployment insurance that covered uh, gig workers never did that before. Uh, you know, there's there's talk about getting child you know tax credits, uh, child uh, payments to. Uh, really low wage workers, you know, there's sort of always been sort of that uh, tax credit for for middle class uh, folks. That's never been done before. So even in, in the things that have happened already, there's been a lot of uh, change and innovation. Um, but I think mm-hmm. what's coming down the pike and what, you know, what I hope that we see more of is 
big talk about investment in uh, in workers, right? And so when they're talking about big infrastructure, um, you know, investment, something that Marty Walsh obviously knows a lot about, or manufacturing <laughs> or broadband technology, or all these things where we've seen that we really have a broken infrastructure system around this country, um, that will have a big impact. I think there's real new conversations being had around care and what does care look like in terms of our um, child care system and our health care system, especially on uh, nursing home and elder care. So I, I think there's a lot of exciting things that could be coming down the pike. Um, yes, well said. The uh, in particular, uh, I think it's uh, important. And our, uh, the mission of the unfunded list, according uh, to our to one federal agency, the IRS, uh, is to educate the public about philanthropy. Mm-hmm. So uh, and. Um, you said one thing about federal grants, right? You need to be, uh, so there are some open federal programs that it's pretty rare that there would be one that like just anybody can apply to. Uh, I myself found one that the unfunded list looked like a good fit for from the National Science Foundation. Uh, but I found it was one of those things that you had to be like a pre-registered contractor for. Uh, and it didn't seem worth the time for us as a small organization. I would have had to go out and find somebody who is, right? Co-submit with them. Sometimes, though, that might be worth the time for a smaller group. Well, I know that sometimes the lead contractor will have a coalition of grassroots organizations, those sorts of things. The um, uh, And uh, one of the reasons for it, as far as I can see, uh, is that um, a fundamental problem with any kind of grant-making program is that you get too many applications. Yep. It doesn't matter who you are, what you do. <laughs> part of it actually is fu- could be fundamentally addressed by your issue, right? The If everybody was very comfortable, <laughs> if their jobs all paid enough, right? And nobody had to worry about health insurance ever, right? Uh, right then perhaps uh, it wouldn't be an issue. Uh, but um, as it stands, if you go out and say, hey, we're giving grants, right? You get a lot of, you get a lot of submissions. Right. Uh, so uh, m- most of the hundreds of thousands of grant-making entities in the world, of which the yeah. National Fund is one, have mm-hmm. specific funding strategies. Federal government yep. too. Yep. Right. And those are all, and it causes in general like confusion for folks who have an idea, want to get that idea funded. They they know that their idea is, is the one, right? Right. And they and sometimes <laughs> some of them come to us and they're very open to hearing critical feedback and some of them not so much um but in general uh right the it is uh it's a difficult universe for them to parse out Uh, but it is in my experience and i've been fundraising and i've had the privilege to give some grants to uh there's usually very good reason and a lot of thought and strategy behind the the funding strategies folks have yep uh and uh so and you've worked for um several different types of funders a private Fund. I don't uh, funder funder uh, where I'm not sure. Are there McCormick's or McCormick family members involved? In... No, no. So it was a legacy foundation. Uh, so that's very, that's, that's an interesting situation. Uh, yeah. But also a, one of the largest, what has to be one of the largest community foundations. Yep. Right. And, and those work very differently in DC. It's almost entirely just donor advised funds. I don't believe anyone who works 
Well, maybe there's some programming and some other stuff, but it's mo but most of the work, most of the dollars anyway, are just, mm -hmm. you know, uh, funny. But I know other community foundations can be much more active um, and other things. And then now, and then I think, now you, what would you call the, other than a national fund, <laughs> is it a, would, it, would you call it a funder collaborative? That's what I would say. What I call. What would you call, what is the national fund for yeah. workforce solutions? Yeah, so we're we're a network of of collaboratives of funder collaboratives. So you know, sort of a little bit of our history is that we were actually created um, it, by a number of national foundations who came together uh, to say that they were you know they were concerned at the time that you know exactly what you said before around sort of the public system that public money was not doing enough to um, to to work with the, the most uh, marginalized or the folks with the most barriers who are looking at um, employment. Uh, and so they, you know, a number of national foundations and some of the big names, right, like Ford and Annie Casey and, um, you know, came together and said, let's pool our money and, and see if we can do some pilot demonstrations and, and think about how to do this. Um, in a way that's a little different. And I, and I think that it's important that that's part of our origin story because that's we've taken that model and sort of replicated it in lots of different communities, right? So we're a network of, of about 30 collaboratives around the country uh, in cities as diverse as San Francisco and Cincinnati and Tuscaloosa and um, Atlanta, where folks on the ground, um, traditionally it was uh, foundations and funders, but it's grown to be other kinds of investors, including employers or public dollars, um, have come together and decided to either align or pool their money uh, on a uh, a collective strategy and a vision that they have for workforce in their community. And so it's generally, that's something I was talking about yesterday with uh, the, the Rudermans. Uh, most cities, Boston, DC where I am now, I imagine Chicago, have uh, a base of like very parochial funders. Mm -hmm. I don't mean that like as an insult. I just mean that they like funding locally right. yep. uh, for various reasons. I've run into it myself as a fundraiser. I um, so I did. Uh, I, I think probably raised uh, most of my dollars uh, when I was working at a place called the Seed Foundation. Uh, we created a public boarding school. We have one in Baltimore that we did the capital campaign for while I was working there. We got a large gift from the Harry and Jeanette Weinberg Foundation yep. while I was there, and I know that they also support the National Fund. It's yep. a very large and well-known foundation, particularly in the Baltimore area. We were really in the school. As I remember, I think one of the buildings is named after them. I'm pretty sure. I think I had to, I think I vaguely remember waiting. It was a long time ago, like 15 years ago. I vaguely remember waiting one day for the plaque to arrive. Like I had to stand in the, and stand there and wait for the plaque. I was like pretty excited about it. It was very, they, they hadn't given me that much responsibility up until that point. Uh, but it's a beautiful school. And mm -hmm. it was, uh, we had to, um, we had uh, Martin O'Malley's support for building it. And um, this is the, my closest personal experience to what you've been talking about. Um, right? And because we had the governor's support, right, he would make phone calls, people who supported education, having this public boarding school brought to Baltimore, uh, was able to move a lot of things forward in a way that was like very helpful to us working at the nonprofit, uh, not mm -hmm. just for the Baltimore school, 
uh, but for the like overall cause, there are several other schools. There's now in New Jersey, uh, I think maybe Cincinnati they're thinking about. It. I don't know. Like I said, it's been a while since I worked for them. Uh, and that was very, uh, very useful, very complex process, lots of paperwork, um, that sort of thing. I imagine what you've been talking about, same sort of stuff. So, uh, do I understand correctly? You, you would go to a place like Baltimore or somewhere else that has like these pro, these local funders who sometimes very much do not want their dollars spent outside of the district. I had donors tell me to get a school in DC and one in Baltimore. They like multiple times they would remind me they really don't want any of their money going to the Baltimore school or to the D school, which is frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> frustrating to hear, obviously, but you honor the, the donor request. Um, the so is that your is that what your work is like? You go into a local community, you learn the particularities of the of the local funders who are yeah. interested in and you get them working together? Yeah, so Weinberg's a great example of that because they were part of that original group of national funders who came together. Uh, they were there from the beginning. They continue to be a national investor in our work, but they also show up at the at our Baltimore Collaborative. So they sit at the table in our Baltimore Collaborative along with other foundations or investors in the area. So it could be, you know, also J.P. Morgan Chase, also a local family foundation. Association of Black Charities, right? There's a, a group of folks who have come together to say, let's actually, um, there are problems that are greater than our institution and anything that we can uh, individually solve. So let's come together and um, try to tackle some of these bigger issues together. And so the collaboratives that we work with, um, they're, they're grassroots and locally grown, right? So, um, you know, when we, you know, we have a list of, of communities around the country who are interested in, for example, being part of the National Fund Network. And oftentimes, like our advice to them is, okay, this is what you got to do on the ground, but there needs to be, you know, sort of organizing and, um, you know, investment and a real desire on the ground. So we don't, um, for the most part, we don't go somewhere and start something, something's already there and has really um, sort of is growing and, and cultivating. Um, and then, you know, they, each collaborative comes up with its own sort of internal structure for how they'll make decisions together and how they'll invest their money together. Um, and that's how it works. Mm -hmm. The, in my limited experience and from the folks I've talked to, uh, that kind of collaboration, very effective stuff, very, mm -hmm. pow very powerful for communities, uh, almost entirely led by the funders. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember one time where we were at Seed, uh, a couple of the donors uh, on their own came up with this idea. Uh, so our students, it was a college preparatory program. They all went off to college. One of the issues was, like, yes, they got to college or whatever, but college is expensive. They don't have money once they get there. Uh, and so the donors came together and he, so he first put in 50,000 of his own money and then he called three friends and got them each to write $50,000. Nice friends, right? This was very. This was a very rich man. He had worked very hard. Built a company, uh, and we did a program for a while. It was very successful. Kept a lot. I think a lot of kids were able to stay in school because of this. We were giving them five hundred dollars a month, all year, while they, as long as they were in school. No strengths. No like they didn't have to show us their grades or anything like that. I remember the the lead donor was like, if they want to spend it on beer, they can spend it on beer. I bought beer in college, right? The uh, and but and I was the fundraiser at the time, and there were like some other programs we wanted to raise money for. 
I just remember thinking like, well, he can, he can do that so easily, but he's, he's the donors can work on it. Uh, you know, uh, you were a labor organizer, right? And as you said, you know, eventually you burn out and that kind of thing. Uh, perhaps not if it was really cushy funded job, if the furniture all matched, right. Came with everything. Mm -hmm. I was an activist myself for a while and I know that you just sort of can't do it forever. <laughs> uh, and uh, that those folks now, right? Those are the proposals I read. Uh, in particular, we have a cool co-review partnership with MIT. Their various grant making programs. Uh, one of the challenges was once uh, future of work, yep. uh, circular economy, uh, several other things. We also co-review with the Kettering Family Foundation, which is uh, there in Flint, Michigan, I think. Very large uh, foundation, Kettering. Uh, figured out how to use Freon for uh, air conditioners, refrigerators, and such. And the foundation gives a lot of grants and stuff to, and a lot of those are uh, local agencies, similar to what you're working on. Uh, but they're not really, they're definitely not uh, like the, the big funders that can put that kind of collaborative work together. Um, and a lot of my role here is telling them, like, you're, in order to get into that room, here's what you'll have to do, and it's going to gonna take much longer than you might have hoped. Right. And I've gotten pretty good at, at, at explaining that, at helping them figure out what their path forward will look like implementing their particular solution. Almost always, it will take longer than you than you think. Right. Bill Gates isn't going to fund this now. You can't send this to him now. <laughs> right. Uh, that's an extreme example, but it does happen. Uh, anyway, help me help me do my job. Uh, you know, what would you, well, these folks who have good potential solutions, we're going to a high level, right? It's been, you know, sometimes in some cases vetted by MIT, semi-finalist, finalists there, my beginning of the fellowship, right? But they're, they're not uh, like, a, they certainly can't apply to labor department grants yet. Um, and they're not, you know, networked with family funders or other things. What is the role for them in this universe? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have to say, like, for, for folks who are doing the work on the ground, one of the things that is important for them to understand around funders, whether they be public funders or uh, private funders, is that, you know, funders have something they're trying to achieve, or they have a vision of the world, or they have some mission that drives them. Mm -hmm. And it really is about trying to understand how you do or do not fit along with that. So, you know, for example, at the National Fund, we have you know, we have a view that we are trying to really create an equitable uh, future uh, for workers and communities and employers. And uh, we have ways that we think we can make that happen, right? We have solutions that we um, have identified where we think they, these solutions will, you know, make, make movement on those things. And so, um, so I think, you know, it's important for, for organizations to understand that. I think that um, you know part of the of uh, the what is helpful about a configuration like the national fund and, and local funders who come together. It often allows them to sort of uh, take risks and build capacity in some organizations, grassroots organizations, um, startup organizations, new organizations that might have some innovative ideas uh, to to take a risk on them or to help them build their capacity. And I think that's incredibly important as we are trying to build, um, 
you know, a, a greater voice, especially of workers of color and, and organizations that represent and serve workers of color, making sure that they um, are in there, you know, along with the other um, entities that have access to these resources that will allow them to do that work. Uh, so you do have, so in, in some of these uh, funder collaboratives, that are, there are direct grants to grassroots organizations? Yeah, that, I mean, that's overwhelmingly how they work, right? So they've brought together their money. Um, again, either they pooled it or aligned it, but they um, eventually sort of, in some cases, regrant that money to, uh, to direct service providers or to coalitions or to uh, entities that, that do the work. And generally, there will, there, uh, will be, um, that'll be included probably in several grants listings how you're doing your donor research. I know that if you're in the BC area, there are several like grants announcement lists that you need to stay on, mm -hmm. right? I imagine Chicago's got the same sort of thing in the various communities that you do. Like I'm generally telling those folks. One thing that's very interesting, I forget, I think it's 211 is the grants hotline in almost every state. Huh. <laughs> hardly, anybody, hardly anybody knows about that. <laughs> but they, in general, the federal government, state government, whatever governments, um, while it's cumbersome to apply to them, uh, they do want to give the grants. <laughs> and in some cases, like I really, really have to. But in general, right, it's a lot of research. You need to find something when you're early on in your career. You need to find some sort of way to be a useful actor on the issue, like you did as a mm -hmm. uh, labor organizer, right? You're, you build skills have, um, and are able to climb your way up, right? Maybe, you know, you may be convinced you know how to solve it today, but right, there's a lot of people have been trying to solve it for a long time. So yep. uh, no matter what issue <laughs> we're talking about, that's probably, that's probably the case. Uh, and there's been, um, uh, there's been a lot of uh, positive change in the area of workforce development. Yeah. Right. Because workforce development to me sounds, you know, and it's, this is very understandable, but like the fun funders uh, and corporate folks need talented workers in the future, right? Which means that the, they have to be talent somebody can profit off of, right? The, uh, which is uh, a lot of great skills, right? But they're like specific ones. Uh, a story I like to tell our applicants often is that almost every single computer science department in the country was founded with a grant from IBM, mm -hmm. which means, right, it's, which is a mix of philanthropy and training program for IBM. They needed people with computer science. When my mother went to college, there was no, you could not major in computer science. Uh, by the time I went there, you could meet every campus in the country. Uh, but it does mean that they were generally not, the curriculum does lean towards the skills IBM wants. Um, the, uh, with, um, and with workforce development, I think the big strength there on that issue, one of the reasons we've had so many wins is uh, labor organizers like your former self and powerful unions and um, right politicians like Marty Walsh that work. So what can we expect if for the future of work? I really like the topic future of work. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm going to start calling this. Yeah. You can continue to call it workforce development. That's it's in the, yeah. Or work, workforce solutions. I like that too. Right. Yeah. Cause there may be solutions outside just upskilling my yeah. general, my general point there, but what's exciting about the future of work for you? 
Yeah, so there's definitely uh, you know a future beyond just um, upskilling, and I, I do want to talk a little bit about like our sort of take and our angle on what we think are the most important issues um, in workforce development and how we approach them, which is you know through the solutions that we think are important, and um, and I think they sort of build on uh, some of the the comments that you made earlier, but. You know, we have a particular, the National Fund and, and folks who are who are uh, members of our collaboratives, we really have focused on four ways that we think that we can make movement in this area and, and really deal with the, you know, whatever you want to call it, the future of work, but it's really not, right? These, these issues that we're having continue to, um, to happen and it's not, upskilling is not the only answer, though it's the answer that we talk a lot about. It's what I hear about a lot. Yeah, There's so a lot of know, funders on it for the reasons I just sort of right? they need yeah. they need people with these they need to have people with these skills to hire them. It leads to some like weird uh, solutions, right? Yeah, like so, I'm gonna upskill these garment workers as coders. It's like what, what do they want to do? The garment workers want to be coders. Yeah, so <laughs> I'll, 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 I want to talk a little bit about our our actual four solutions because we you, you, you said know, four you have four specific we have four we have four let's and, do them let's do all four. And upskilling is one of them. So one of our solutions is Equip Workers for Success, which is really about acknowledging that uh, there are, you know, there's skills training that workers need and industries need to be more thoughtful about how they do that and make it more accessible and, and, um, and, and you know, oftentimes like make sure that those opportunities are being made available to a, a broader audience and they that they might be have, you know, have an access to today. Um, so, you know, with Equip Workers for Success, we really think about skills training, but beyond that, really think about what worker supports and what worker engagement needs to happen for those places, you know, for those uh, training programs to be successful, right? So what you just described, do garment workers really want to become coders? Let's like, let's actually, talk to those workers and understand their lifestyle and understand uh, what they need to be able to make sure they're successful. Um, but we also acknowledge that employers have a role to play in this. So one of our solutions is really about working directly with employers to activate them to make their jobs better. Um, that there is some uh, responsibility of employers to actually think through that this themselves like how do they make sure that their jobs are quality jobs and how do they make sure that they have opportunity within the jobs that they provide to people um, we recognize that not just training workers or improving employers uh, practices is going to you know necessarily change everything that there needs to be a focus on changing systems so that the kinds of institutions that uh, workers you know sort of the ecosystem of entities that uh, workers interact with, whether they be, you know, training provider, community colleges, the, you know, K through 12 system, wherever they are um, interfacing with folks that sometimes those systems um, and those structures are actually barriers to their success. So we need to be thoughtful about training, changing those systems. And then, you know, co-invest, which we've been talking about this whole time, how do we bring all those resources together? Uh, locally and nationally to make movement on those things. So that is the, I've been, I took some quick notes. My, uh, the four are training workers with new skills. Equip uh, workers for success. Equip workers for success. Yeah. That's great. The uh, second is um, working directly with employers. 
Yeah, activating activating employers to make jobs better. Uh, and uh, change then systems change. Yeah. I like that. That's third. No, just yeah. we'll make systems change third. <laughs> it's and, it's and an ambitious in no, agenda. In no, particular, in no particular order. You're doing all of these in equal in equal measure. The yeah. uh, and then co-investing, right? Which is you get your your the Weinberg Foundation and other donors offering training programs, working with employers, and engaging in systems change. Yep. It's very good. It's an ambitious and comprehensive strategy. Thank you. <laughs> best of uh, best of luck with it going forward. Uh, this has been this has been a fun and informative conversation for the folks. I think. I hope you've enjoyed it. Is there anything else that uh, I have asked the questions that I have wanted that I wanted to ask? Um, is there anything else you would like to talk about? <laughs> anything you want to ask me? No, I mean I think uh, as you said, this is a, a moment of a lot of possibility, um, and so we're excited that we feel uh, positioned both nationally and locally to to really try to. Um, have a lot of influence and make movement in terms of making sure that this is a economy that works for everybody. Um, you know, especially folks that we know who have been uh, taking a beating uh, this last year. It is an exciting uh, topic to be working on, I think. Uh, I'm the sort of professional that likes to, I would never be able to work on just one thing. I would grow bored with it very quickly. I like, I'm fun of this because I read all kinds of different proposals and everything. Uh, do you have any? Is there anything else you want to say to the microphones? No, thank you. All right, thank you everybody uh, for listening. This has been the Open Door Philanthropy Podcast. Best of luck to you with your grant proposals and your other endeavors. Thanks for listening. Thank you.